and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbur Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friend Giselle Donnelly. I'm also at AEI and Julia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Tamar Jacobi, the director of the new Ukraine project at the Progressive Policy Institute and author of Ukraine's Other Front, The War on Corruption, a new report that has just come out with PPI. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Tamar, it's great to have you back on the podcast. You've spent much of the past 18 months in Ukraine or in close proximity to Ukraine, doing journalistic work and seeing how, how things sort of unfolded on, on many different fronts. And, and one of the issues that have been of interest to you is, is obviously this question of, of, of corruption and the institutional strength of, of Ukraine. There is this trope in America, uh, particularly in Ukraine skeptical circles, that it's a hopelessly corrupt country and whatever aid is being sent to Ukraine ends up in a sort of bottomless money pit. And, you know, five days later, as, as the famous Twitter meme indicates, we'll have President Zelensky asking for more. So, so, so why is this a really wrong-headed way of, of thinking about, uh, about you know, Ukraine's corruption problem and the role of Western assistance? Adelbert, uh, thank you so much. And, and to, to all of you, thanks for having me back. And um, that's exactly why I wanted to look into the corruption issue in Ukraine, because it is such a, such a in a way, barrier, really, to, um, to U.S. help. And, and, um, and it's a, such a long, old stereotype. And it's, and it's not only a stereotype. But let's, you know, let's be candid from the start. Ukraine um, was part of the Soviet Union for 70 years. And in the Soviet command and control shortage economy, in some ways, corruption was the only way to get by. You had to barter and bribe in order to, to get basic services and, and, and food. Um, so Ukraine did inherit an awful legacy of corruption, and that we have to start by being honest about that. But what's important, really, is that reformers in Ukraine, young Ukrainians, people who want to join Europe, have been fighting this corruption, not for a few weeks, not for a few months, but for fully 10 years, a full-on fight in Ukraine to push back these old bad habits. And like any ha bad habits, you know, they're learned and they're unlearnable. And these, these reformers, who are no longer so young, it's 10 years later, have made enormous progress in that decade. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the, the struggle to, to beat back corruption wasn't over when the full-scale invasion happened. But paradoxically, unexpectedly, you know, really surprising to many, instead of putting that fight on hold, the war has accelerated that fight in the biggest way um, and really boosted into the stratosphere. And Ukraine is making, you know, twice as fast strides now to beat that corruption. It's not, it's not over. This is work that will remain to be done, as building democracy will remain to be done after the after the fighting is over. But Ukraine has come a long way and Ukrainians are now determined that that fight really must be won and that their their sons and brothers are not dying for an old Soviet style corrupt society. Could you point us to specific sort of institutional changes and reforms that occurred after 2014 and, and show us how they have made the difference to how you, corruption is tackled? Yeah, well, let's first yeah, sure. So let's start there. So, so 2014, obviously, for those who 
who those who those who don't follow Ukraine so closely was the Maidan Revolution of Dignity, and a million people came into the street to, to demand to join Europe, and part of what what motivated them and in, in one of the main motivations was they wanted to get rid of the old Soviet legacies, including corruption. So in the aftermath of Maidan, when the when the revolution was successful, um, a lot of changes were made quickly. Um, institutions were created, a cluster of institutions that would um, investigate detectives, prosecutors, and a court that would investigate corrupt crimes of corruption. A system was established where all public procurement was done online on an open platform so that every paperclip that a, that a parliamentary office orders or a city, or mayor or a city hospital or whatever, um, is, is, it's, it's online where they bought it and how much they paid and what, what are the details of the contractor who they bought it from. Um, there was also a system where all public officials from the president down to the lowest, you know, new hire uh, security service has to file what's called an asset declaration where, you know, days worth of, of, of filling out forms about everything you own, everything you've earned, down to your car and your watch and your, the wines in your basement if you have any. Um, so, you know, lots of particularly e a commerce, you know, e-online, e-government um, systems, and these institutions that were de the detectives were the FBI helped train the detectives. So these institutions went to work, and meanwhile, um, the the young the young reformers formed a kind of watchdog democratic opposition that used these online tools to put pressure on the corrupt officials. It was a battle for 10 years because the corrupt officials also had a lot at their disposal. Um, they were they were judges. They owned the media. They, the, the half of the between a third and 40 percent of more of the parliament answered to a corrupt oligarch. The oligarchs owned basically owned all the big industries. So it, the, the the other side had a lot to push back with. <laughs> and by the way, Russia was helping the other side all along because Russia liked the idea of a corrupt Ukraine where they could pull strings. Um, so there was a 10 year battle. And by February 2022, when the full-scale invasion happened, you know, I would have called it about 50-50. Like, the, the reformers were do, had made this, created an incredible infrastructure, but there were still ways for the old guard to, you know, put the wrong people in charge of the, of the institutions, for example, or to use other arms of government to get around the institutions. But what the EU did, well, three things happened in the war. One is that the, the fighting destroyed about nearly a third, a third to a half of the wealth of the oligarchs. So suddenly the oligarchs are much less powerful. And a wartime reform of the media took away their TV stations. The, all the TV stations had been controlled by oligarchs, and now they didn't have that instrument anymore. So the oligarchs have been temporarily tamed. Big, important wartime change we can talk more about. Um, second big, important wartime change is the EU and the international pressure, which has been very focused and very specific and very intelligent and informed. And the EU has looked at the institutions that were in place and the reforms that were ongoing, and it has really figured out the next step in almost every case and insisted on that next step happening, a pivotal key next step for any advancement of membership talks. So, you know, for example, these institutions, the Bureau of, of, of Detectives and the Prosecutors, you know, EU said, great, those are nice institutions, but the, but the leadership isn't, isn't strong enough. And we need to see stronger leadership picked in a more transparent, open, democratic, um, trustworthy, reliable way. And sure enough, that happened. And a combination of that and 
advances on the on the court, the anti-corruption court that investigates the cases that these institutions find, that whole structure of institutions has suddenly gone into high gear, where it was kind of limping along and hampered at every turn before the full-scale invasion. Now it's roaring, and in the best way. Um, investigating cases, prosecuting cases, trying cases, getting verdicts. I mean, there have been more verdicts in the last couple of years than in you know like decades previously against judges and, and others. So we had the oligarchs taming, temporary taming of the oligarchs, the strengthening of the institutions, thanks primarily to the thanks thanks to this very clever intervention of the EU. And then there's been a big shift in public opinion. You know, as as I was alluding to a minute ago, you know, before the full-scale invasion, I think a lot of people were fatalistic, kind of saying, well, you know, this is a corrupt country. You know, it's like the what can we do? It's kind of like the weather. We live with it. But since the since you know tens of thousands of men and boys and women, in fact, have died for the idea of this country, people have started to say, we're not, we're not dying, we haven't lost our houses, our families aren't dying, we're not going through this for the sake of the old, corrupt, Soviet-style regime, and we want something new. And there was a great um, moment a few weeks ago where these asset declarations had been suspended by martial law, and the public started to clamor and said, we want to see those asset declarations again. We want to know what public officials are making and what they own. And at first, the Rada, like they always used to do, stalled and hemmed and hawed and dragged their feet and carried on. And uh, then they passed a law that was only like half a law, like, okay, we have to file the asset declarations now, but the public can't see them. And in two, in two hours, 80,000 people signed a petition to Zelensky saying, open up that, those asset declarations, we want to see them. And you better believe it, he acted you know, with, with, in haste and did that. And so again, what we see there is the combination of the taming of the oligarchs, the, um, the, the EU having set up the conditions, I mean the asset declarations had been a long time demand of the EU and the IMF, and then public, this new public political will, and it's really, I mean I think it's moving mountains, and it, it doesn't mean it's over, but I think it's really important. And I think, that, you know, the US, as we consider aid, we need to think about what the, what the EU has done and think about um, you know, imitate, following that, doing the same. I mean the Ukrainian reformers want the aid to come with conditions, not military aid and not human emergency humanitarian aid, but they want membership in, in, in international bodies and they want, uh, you know, reconstruction assistance. They want that all conditioned on reform so that the reformers have, have that extra leverage over that old guard, which, you know, everyone knows is still lying there waiting to bounce back and fight back. The, it seemed to me also recently that, I, I wish you would evaluate this, this thought, that the dismissal of Defense Minister Reznikov was really a transform, you know, that was another level of not only in the formal anti-corruption campaign, but to your point about public opinion and, and not only about the reaction to the public opinion, but sort of the preemptive reaction to public opinion. I mean, here was a man who was the symbol of Ukrainian battlefield success, was doing a very fine job as defense minister from, from all we know. Highly respected, uh, almost beloved in the West for have the relationships that he'd established with uh, his counterparts and you know, defense intellectuals. He was you know, well regarded by uh, the people who are, are closely following the war, uh, uh, you know, an intimate of Zelensky himself. And there was no, or at least I haven't seen so far, any intimation that he himself was corrupt, but 
the charge really was that he was not sufficiently attentive to corruption within the military procurement system and therefore had to be dismissed. I mean, that's a level of, uh, you know, um, certainly the Nixon administration wouldn't have done something like that. Well, I mean, it also what's striking is it's just like how, like, like by Ukrainian pre-war standards, petty the, the sort of charges looked. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. So, I mean, that's... That's true. That's true. That's true. Just a couple of caveats. I mean, what he mainly did wrong was um, he stonewalled when the media came at him when they when the corruption came to light. And, um, so, you know, and it was pretty petty corruption, right? We're overpaying for eggs and buying the wrong kind of coats. I mean, it's not good, but it's, but it's you know, it wasn't like bribing a major judge or, you know, whatever. Um, but, but he stonewalled when the media came came investigating, he kind of crossed his arms and said, you know, security, get away. And um, that was seen as the sin. I think it was important and an important signal um, to, to move against him. And noteworthy that um, Zelensky did it on the same basically week that he also went after his former patron, you know, maybe even more important, the oligarch who owned the TV channel where his TV show had appeared before he was president and the oligarch that basically paid for his campaign, financed his campaign. So, you know, that was in some ways even a more striking personal, you know, I'm willing to go after my personal, after my close circle. But I think the reformers in Ukraine, and, you know, if I can may try to channel them, I think they would say, great, important symbol, important communication, but let's be careful that this doesn't become like a man, you know, man-to-man fighting, sort of. That, you know, Zelensky firing somebody in his inner circle, that's a good sign, but really we need to go through the institutions and we need to use the institutions and we need to strengthen the institutions. And, you know, one powerful guy fighting back against another powerful guy, that's the way it's always worked. <laughs> you know, that going back to the when the party was the elite, not the oligarchs. And so, so you know, important step, but really the important steps are strengthening those institutions and strengthening the you know the the framework of legality and constitutional checks and balances and and you know that's Zelensky had a law, an anti-oligarch law. He was the first president who was able to pass any measure, anti-oligarch measures. He passed an anti-oligarch law, I think, in 2020, and the the Venice Commission just you know overruled it and basically said that's not the way to go about it because his way of going about it was. You know, me. I'm gonna. We're gonna identify 12 strong men, and then we're gonna we're gonna you know prevent them from doing things. And the Venice Commission said that you know punitive personal approach is not the way to do it. <laughs> we need systemic reforms that really change the system. And it doesn't. You know, Zelensky's a brilliant communicator, and he communicated with the Resnikov firing, and you heard it loud and clear. And I think a lot of people did, including Ukrainians. But it, and it's not. I'm not saying that shouldn't happen. But the that the other longer term stuff is 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 also really 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 important. First of all, Tamar, I wanna thank you for putting together a picture that we're missing. Um, Giselle and Dadebur are right about the Reznikov cases being uh, the the most visible we've seen and the communication around it was very powerful. But the, the story that you're telling about EU institution building and uh, in most of all, the pushback from civil society over the last decade, and particularly since the full-scale invasion, that despite having a number of think tanks looking into, in D.C., looking into 
anti-corruption efforts, we do not see that story at all. And we don't see it in the media neither. And so um, it, uh, kudos for, for telling it um, so compellingly because we need more on, on that. I want to build on the EU part um, and highlight that a little bit and basically ask you about EU versus the United States. So you are, as we are aware, that we have a narrative building here that is wrong for several reasons about uh, Ukraine being um, just corrupt and uh, bottomless, as uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of, of this episode. And the, we've seen over the last few weeks the United States where it's been leaked, right? Um, the, these three, four pages um, from the Biden administration about basically conditionality for aid. And in itself, of course, that's good because the civil society in Ukraine welcomes any kind of checks and balances and any kinds of um, uh, support from the West um, for the fight against corruption. But the United States, to be frank, has less experience and less instruments, um, institution building compared to the European Union. And the European Union has been around for a decade. And not only that, but we've seen neighboring countries, particularly Poland at the local level, offering their expertise and their experience, and not only Poland, uh, in terms of institution building and integration into the EU as progress. So how do you see this? Is it just a political instrument from the United States to kind of calm the spirits here? Um, you've looked at, at the content. Is it doubling with the EU? Is it welcomed um, in, in terms of um, technical pressure or in double pressure as well? How uh, Help us make sense of it. Where is the United States there? Yeah, well, let's start with the welcome part. I mean, well, let's let's just let's talk about civil society for a second. So, you know, in civil society can mean many things. In Ukraine, it means both the public will at large, but also these you know dozen or so leading institu reform institutions that are really the country's democratic opposition, and they're very very important because they know the landscape and they they really are the voice of change and have been driving change for ten years. So again, I I do tend to listen to them. They beg the West for help. I mean, I, I had a din organized a dinner in Brussels where we brought a civil society activist to meet um, members of the European Parliament, and they were sort of saying, well, maybe we should go easy on this provision of the, the conditions. You know, maybe it's okay if you do it sort of the, you know, we take some shortcuts to get there. And the civil society activists were begging them, don't do that. Don't let us off the hook. Don't ease up on that conditionality. You know, imagine any kind of fight it's, where it's a standoff and two sides are, you know, just at equal pressure. You know, somebody giving a little nudge to the to the in the right direction can really make a difference. And that's what the civil society activists keep saying. The, the conditions really matter. So I and you know I've certainly heard many say they want, for example, NATO membership conditioned on reform. I mean, people would have been very disappointed if Zelensky had come home from Vilnius with a, with you know forgive the phrase but a blank check. Um, you know, and made no membership assured. People want conditionality attached to it. That said, there's certainly a danger that in the, that U.S. politicians acting politically, you know, could put the wrong kind of conditions on. <laughs> um, and you know, so. The, but my advice would be consult with the civil society activists and 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 EU people who know the the, the, the landscape and craft something 
you know, tactical and, 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 and effective the way the EU conditions have been. You know, the EU conditions aren't perfect, but they've built a roadmap for Ukraine to follow and put conditionality at just these very strategic points. And the US, I think, could try to do the same. I mean, we need to be careful. Again, I, you know, I have a personal stake in this. I don't want the Patriot missiles, you know, um, um, conditioned on something that's not achievable, but, um, you know, that are protecting my apartment. But, um, um, the you know so there's so it's about it's about it's about doing it well um, it's about doing it you know doing it in the right way and consulting with the people on the ground who know but I don't I don't think you know friends of Ukraine do Ukraine any favor to say let's go easy because you know the point is that this war is that people are dying to for a new country for a new Western effective modern country and they're you know at least half of Ukrainians you know, are actively, I mean, every Ukrainian you speak to understands that and talks about that. We're not helping them if we say, oh, it's okay, we'll help you fight, but we're not going to help you get to that democratic, you know, market economy, Western-oriented market economy that you want. So I think it's, 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 your, your, your concerns aren't, aren't, are well-grounded. You know, Americans do, American policymakers do a lot of sloppy things in the name of politics, but, but it's not a bad aim to have conditionality. The track record, say, in Afghanistan and Iraq is of American efforts in this regard is, is not particularly uh, cheery. It, it was the case, and the, you couldn't have a better example than the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan, which became kind of a rogue institution entirely on its own and saw its job really to dig up dirt and really little beyond that. It did not offer um, recommendations for uh, improvements. And I would even be skeptical of the State Department's capacity to do what the EU has had to learn to do over the past I mean, you're getting EU praise from me, so mark this date in your calendar. It is calendars. a special episode. Yeah, right but now. That, you know they they've had a lot of experience helping uh, Eastern, you know, former Soviet puppet states, and you know, in Eastern Europe to uh, to to guide them into the uh, framework of uh, Western governance. I mean, it hasn't always been perfect, but it's been pretty darn successful as a general rule, whereas our attitude has been, let's find all the nasty stuff we can and use that as political capital to hedge against and to you know, apply conditionality even to security and military assistance. So, and actually, I was just looking through the, the where the money has gone in Ukraine aid, and uh, all the departments uh, have... Inspector General Operations, DOD, State, uh, so on and so forth. GAO has, you know, part of the Ukraine supplemental has gone to fund GAO checkers uh, for Ukraine. I, I just really fear we're headed down a similar path where this, it isn't really oversight, it's more gotcha. So if, uh, Tamar, if I may, before you react to this, I, I wanted to sort of attach a distinct but related question that that also connects to what you said about empowering civil society, which has been you know one of the sort of main prescriptions of 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 of, of the report which you just did. There is a challenge on the right in the United States when it comes to empowering you know foreign country civil societies because for many people on the right 
Civil society is oftentimes used as a shorthand for a range of woke, progressive social causes and organizations. And uh, I've heard this argument from the Ukraine skeptic crowd, not least from our friends at the Heritage Foundation, saying that it should not be the role of the United States to be funding civil society, that may maybe we should give them weapons. But you know, let the Europeans deal with civil society and, and then there is a massive sort of resistance on, on, on the right against aid to Ukraine writ large. And I think the the more they can point to examples of uh, aid going to causes they don't like, um, the the more energized that, that opposition to Ukraine aid gets. So so the question is how you sort of navigate that that, that sort of perilous political environment in this country. Yeah, no, I understand I understand that concern and I understand your concern as well, Giselle. And I don't know I don't know the ins and outs of the US bureaucratic side clearly as well as, as you do. Um, what I would say about about I mean I would just let me back up for a second and sort of say you know what are the stakes here and what does America really want in Ukraine you know a gray zone corrupt country without a real market economy without political parties and a robust de democratic right <laughs> yeah i uh, you know corrupt untour unmoored geopolitically you know next to, as 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 what's between Russia and Europe that will be that would be much worse than Russia taking over Right. So, the, the, you know, for want of a better word, the, these institutions building the democracy, creating a, a vibrant, healthy, democratic market economy is as much in our security interests as getting the Russian troops out. And so I think to sort of say, well, we're going to give the military aid and good luck with the rest. I, I, I think that's a mistake. So I think these these issues of, um, yes, there's a, there'll be a problem in persuading you know, political factions, political, you know, more than factions, political, uh, you know, sides here to support the right help in, in building a new country. And yes, there's danger we could do it wrong, but I don't think we can just say, oh, let the Europeans do that. We've done our part. We sent them some missiles. We're done. I, I just don't think, I don't think we've accomplished the point <laughs> uh, if we do that. So I'm not, I'm not gainsaying your concerns. I'm sure they're very real and, and, and a good corrective to my, to my paper. But, um, but I don't think we can sort of give up on that. One of the things that really struck me early in the war, Tamar, was your reporting from Irpin. Certainly, I, you know, I'll only speak for myself. I was very forcefully reminded this past weekend just because of the sheer cruelty and barbarity of the Hamas attacks on Israel I mean, this is something we've wanted to make an episode about in recent months to draw attention not away from those atrocities, but to remind people that atrocities uh, have occurred of a quite brutal character and on a really arguably even a larger scale if you just sort of add them up in some crude way uh, in Ukraine, perpetrated by not only Russian troops, but Wagnerites and, you know, even the uh, militias of the puppet republics uh, in the Donbass. I'd be interested in, because that's a subject that you've devoted some attention to, you know, what your thoughts are in that regard. Yeah, so I'm not a 
international lawyer, right, and, and the fine distinctions about what's a state and what's a terrorist and, you know, what, when, is, when have you declared war and when is it, you know, just murdering civilians for the sake of murdering civilians. So I don't want to pretend to speak to that with any authority. Um, but, and, ev and everybody on all sides in both these conflicts calls the other side terrorist, you might notice. Like everyone tries to delegitimize de the others <laughs> by calling them terrorists. But I would certainly say, well, those caveats aside, that the brutality, the sort of un no holds barred brutality and real disregard for civilian um, for civilian life, or and certainly even using civilian life as a as a as something to be to be not quite as a weapon, but as something to be destroyed as a weapon. Um, that's certainly parallel. I mean, I was th I was I visited um, near the front a couple of weeks ago, um, and the city of Orakiv Orakiv is um, a small town kind of about 30 miles from the, from the fighting, from the, where the breakthrough was uh, on the southern front near Zaporizhia. And I'd been to Orkhiv before. And um, when I was last there in May, it was pretty badly destroyed, but it was still, there was still a lot of buildings standing. It still looked like a city. And I wasn't able to actually get in this time, the, the cordon of you know, military, whatever, was, was right outside. But I met quite a few people who'd fled and saw their videos and their photos and heard their stories. And it looks like those cities in Syria that were reduced to rubble, you know, in, in previous, in previous <laughs> Russianated, um, uh, you know, conflicts. Um, you know, just literally a city now that's, that's, that's bricks on the ground um, and stones on the ground. And, you know, when you hear about what the Russians were trying to do are still are going to try to do again this winter with the um, with the hitting the electricity grid. You know, the idea wasn't just that they would knock out the electricity. The idea is that people would be without water, that disease would run rampant through the cities. I mean, just unbelievable cruelty and barbarity. So, you know, never mind the random soldier, you know, shooting and raping. I mean, we don't like that either. But this is, you know, at the level of leadership thinking, um, you know, how can we use civilians as pawns in this game? On that note, a question about what what Ukrainians are expecting in the next few months. Um, you're um, closer um, and and nearer to um, what is going on than any of us are here. And so it's last fall and winter, we were all fearing exactly what you mentioned, um, attacks on critical infrastructure, especially, um, especially energy and electricity. To what extent is that relevant this winter what are people fearing as we're ending the the summer part and we're going into the uh into the winter season in terms of the counteroffensive as well and in terms of russian uh, attacks and russian cruelty there's been you know, uh, here and there, we never know whether it's disinformation or not. We're hearing about North Korean weapons and uh, and amplified offensives um, from the Russian side planned before the end of the year. What are people saying and what are people fearing in Ukraine? Well, just I'm going to get to that. But let me just say one thing What your question brings to mind for me. What do people fear most right now? That the U.S. will cut off aid. <laughs> Like the front that matters right now is here. 
on this on Capitol Hill is in American politics. You ask what people fear, that is what people fear. That is what people talked about. People do expect intensified attacks on the on the on the on the electricity and the energy grid. They think that they haven't been able to repair fully what what was damaged last year. You know, they tried, they worked hard, but repair is difficult. New is easier than repair, apparently. I know nothing about it, but um, and they so the, they go in with a lot of damage, and they're expecting the Russians to double down on that. There hasn't been an air raid in Kiev in a couple of weeks now, and it's I think everybody thinks it's because they're stockpiling the weaponry. Um, I, I'll just tell you, I bought a, something that looks like a car battery that I'm hoping will um, you know keep my microwave going, and then my building, thank God, you know, bought a generator. But everyone is expecting it. Everyone is expecting it to be worse than last year. But what they say, you know, it's Ukrainian. It's Ukraine. They say, you know, we got through it once. We'll get through it again. Um, you know, at least this time we we're, we can prepare. But uh, it's certainly. I think, you know, everybody will be a little surprised if it doesn't occur and, if, and, and people are just getting ready. You know, you buy your people, you know, buy couscous, buy tanned, canned goods, buy, you know, get your, your power uh, station, um, you know, get, get, if your building can get a generator, everybody's just getting ready. So, so you, you invoked this, this question of, of further U.S. assistance to, to Ukraine. You have just spent uh, a couple of days in Washington, including on Capitol Hill, speaking to staffers and members, trying to educate them about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, I think it might be useful to, uh, you know, get get from that experience your sort of impressionistic view of where things are in the light of you know the, the chaos on the Republican side with the speakership contest and the um, dismissal of of Kevin McCarthy uh, with the continuing resolution that didn't include a provisions for, for help uh, to Ukraine. And also in the light of, of the most recent events in the Middle East, uh, which might also warrant some form of U.S. assistance to, 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 to Israel. So, so, so are, you, are you, you know, optimistic, pessimistic? Are there sort of signs of hope? Are there things? You know, arguments that people are receptive to, especially on the Republican side. Uh, what's what's your take on where things are headed? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm deeply worried. Let's let's say that. You know, in the optimistic, pessimistic, I'm deeply worried because I think the war is going to go on. You know. For some time, <laughs> and even in the best case scenario, I I worry that the U.S. will will falter. But um, you know, the, the, my conversations, um, you know, it's I, it was a small scattering smattering of conversations and quite scattered across the political spectrum. And in very recent days, you know, I was up there on the day on the, on the day that the, um, the the I guess I guess the day after McCarthy was as you say dismissed, a good word for it. And also I was up there yesterday, <laughs> so you know people were kind of reeling from the news and and um, and I think still absorbing what's happening in the Middle East, you know, as sort of the news came out. So I don't have any definitive view of it, but I would say that um, people do seem quite confident that the Senate will get it together um, and that the threat is in the House and people seem across the board to be telling me that it's only a, it's only a few people who are really so skeptical that they want to block it. But of course, even if, under the rules that we live by now, even a few people can block things and, and can maneuver. But you know, the sort of sense was overall, even ours in the House kind of get it. The problem is they're under pressure politically and um, the, 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 the few who were adamantly opposed have very loud voices. But so, I mean, 
that situation, you know, I, I'm not a hill mastermind, um, but that situation would suggest that if you do it right, maybe you can get something through. Um, and it is, I think, probably about packaging. And is it about packaging with the Middle East? Is it about packaging with some kind of border measure? Um, you know, what a lot of Republicans talked about that. Democrats didn't seem so open to it, but they haven't started negotiating yet. Um, you know, um, I, I mean, the challenge is that they don't negotiate on the Hill anymore. You know, as, as, as somebody said to me, we don't talk about anything. You know, we didn't even have conversations about um, you know, McCarthy didn't even come to Democrats behind the scenes to get ask for a few votes last week. So, you know, if we can't talk to each other about keeping the government open, how are we going to talk to each other about, you know, Ukraine aid? But um, my, my, I, guess, I think my hope would be a package. And my hope would be, I think, you know, Republicans, one of the smartest things anyone said to me on the Hill was, you know, Republican rank and file don't want to have to take votes on this. They, you know, it's a look, it's not a good look with their with their constituents. So, you know, let's let's maybe like let's rip, let's put it together a package that's that's hard to decline for other reasons and rip the mandate off and try to get it done. I don't know if that's the best idea. I, you know, I would I would I would not. I'm not in the position to absolutely fight recommend that. But um, but I that that did certainly has occurred to me on the basis of the few meetings I've had. Well, that is informative. Uh, and here is to hoping for a good omnibus <laughs> that can get Ukrainians what they, what they need. I remember, I remember the year they called it the Kromnibus, so I forget what that was supposed to be, but maybe they call it that. I feel also that the best thing that Ukrainians can do right now, apart from, of course, fighting the right fight, is not the fight against corruption, not anything else, but learning about the Hill. <laughs> That's the best thing they can do. Well, I mean, I... I think it would make a big difference in that debate, personally, if, um, if, if you know, the people who, I mean, I, I remember the questions McCarthy asked when Zelensky was coming. He said, you know, I want to, he didn't say absolutely no. He said, I want to know what the plan is. And I think, you know, if we had a better, really, I mean, I think the Ukrainians have a very clear definition of victory, but I don't think the Biden administration has put forward a clear plan of victory. And I don't know if it's the Biden administration alone that should be putting it forward, but, you know, maybe if the West collectively had a much clearer definition of victory and at least some kind of a plan about how we were going to get there, I think it would be a very persuasive argument. And, you know, I don't think it would, I think there are people who are going to say no and under any circumstances and for whom that those questions are just an excuse. But I think it makes it, 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 there, it, there is a way in which we're going to help them as long as it takes, you know, isn't, isn't, isn't that persuasive. And, you know, I think, I think it's also true that we've, you know, I, I'm not the only person, I'm certainly not the only person who said this. Many people have been saying it for more than a year, but that we've, we've given them enough to make sure Russia doesn't win, but not enough to, to for them, to, for Ukraine to win. And I think we need to come up with a definition of winning and make it push to give them enough to win. I mean, the, the, you know, the, 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 the counteroffensive is stalled on the ground, but it's not stalled in, you know, in the Black, in the Black Sea, in the seas of Azov. And we don't even talk about that, really. So, you know, the Ukrainians are still resourceful. They still feel they have momentum. They have ideas. They just don't have the right weapons. <laughs> and I think we need to define the end game and give them the tools to get there. No, I was just going to say, it seems uh, in that vein that there is stonewalling from the administration. You are right. We have to see differentiated. Some are using it as an excuse, definitely. But hey, Biden promised a speech after the ousting um, of of McCarthy, and that never happened. Um, and it would have been the first and only speech um, on Ukraine to the United States. So, I mean, I'm not sure Biden's best spokesperson, right? I mean, um, I'm not the first person. Well, he, his, you know, he knocked it out of the park with the uh, Israel support. Although there too, right? People are saying 
I mean, you know, that he's doing enough to, to he sounds good, but, you know, he's, I mean, he's made yeah, no, no, a wider Show me the money. His main yeah. fear has always been, in both cases, is a wider war. And right, right. so, like, we don't want a wider war. But there's, there, you know, it's, I mean, I, and I'm not, you know, I'm not president. I'm sure those are hard decisions. But um, I, in Ukraine, I just think it's time to say what we want and try to get there. I, I think I think we all agree with that. The, I mean, the, the problem is that there is this tension in the administration and among many people that, that I mean, it's on on one level easy to say that yes, we want Ukraine to be restored to its 1991 borders with Crimea and everything, but we are not willing to take steps in that direction for fear of yeah. some kind of uncontrolled escalation. And 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 so 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 unless people are willing to sort of take those steps, then it doesn't really help that you say that you want Ukraine in 1991 borders. And that's you know the way they are sort of dodging it is by saying what well, you know we'll do whatever it you know, support Ukraine for how, how long it takes. And, and that's just not good enough. But I mean, eventually it's going to come to that, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, A, Putin hasn't, yeah. you know, the fears of escalation haven't been borne out, you know, till now. And I mean, I'm not saying there are no fears and I'm not saying it's not real and it's a real issue. Um, um, we can't, you know, there are lines that we can't cross, but um, I don't know. I feel like, you know, smarter minds than I can, you know, it could start moving in that direction. I mean, I'll just tell one more vignette from the front. Um, and I think I've told you this, Talibor, forgive me, but, um, you know, I was at the front, uh, as I say, two weeks ago, and I, I didn't actually go to where the shooting was, but I spent an evening in a little house where soldiers coming to the city sleep when they're going to the doctor or taking a train, whatever. And I sat in the kitchen, which is kind of family-sized kitchen, as they, you know, filed in and out, just getting a, getting a bowl of soup or whatever, and talked to them. And... They were utterly exhausted. Well, let me say this. Before I went there, I thought that the, before that evening, I thought that the day U.S. military aid ended, the war would end about two weeks later. I mean, I hope that doesn't happen, but that that's what, that's how it would go. The guns would, you know, the missiles would stop, would stop, the ammunition would stop arriving and Ukraine would just say, well, that's it, you know, can't go any further. But so I, I talked to these men and they were in a very bad way, right? <laughs> they were exhausted. They'd been in assault an assault duty for, for for months, many of them. They, you know, they took pictures out their phones and they showed you pictures of the day they went out with 11 men and came back with three and, you know, their own APCs and ribbons and they didn't really have a theory of winning, you know, like all they, they were throwing themselves at a brick wall and didn't really see how, what was going to happen. And so I said at one point, after quite a lot of this, I said, well, you know, it sounds awful, like, you know, I hate to say this, but is it time to start thinking about negotiation? And they practically spit at me you know, to a person. And it was a kind of middle-aged man who said to me, um, if I don't get this done, my son is going to have to fight and maybe die for it. I have to get it done. I have no choice. And, you know, what that suggests to me is that the, the USA, you know, if it ends, they will continue fighting. They are going to fight to the last man. You know, basically, they are going to bleed out. And, you know, that's it's a, it's a horrible notion. But, you know, up till then, I kind of thought, well, we control when this war begins and ends. I don't think we control when this war begins and ends. But we do control, in many ways, what the, what the outcome could be. And we certainly have the power to bring the end forward. And, and better. <laughs> a better outcome. Well, on that note... Tamar Jacobi, thank you so much for joining us on the Eastern Front. Thank you for having me. From my friends Giselle Donnelly and Yulia Zosa. And me, Dali Barash. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. 
You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.